Well, the country of Egypt is famous for many different things. The Nile River, for example, is the longest river in Africa. It's the lifeblood of that nation. Egypt is known for her ancient history. It's the archaeologist's dream. It's a magnet for archaeologists globally to come unearthing tombs and shrines. Egypt is known for her cotton, called Egyptian white gold. It's a demand for it growing with every passing year. Egypt is also famous for the highest concentration of landmines in the world. Estimates hover around 23 million. We call them maybe rusty artifacts left over from World War II. The shifting dunes cover them, but they're just as deadly now as they may have been then. Well, in a similar way, the book of 1 Peter, it holds its own distinctives. It's known for its encouragement in persecution, offering comfort, verses of comfort. Cast all your anxiety on him, says Peter, because he cares for you. It's known for its verses about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But First Peter also has its own landmines. Something of a minefield. We're going to step into a few explosive verses this morning. First Peter chapter 3. Maybe it's more accurate to say I am going to step in to these verses this morning. You'll step back and watch. Well, the verses are explosive because this is a passage about wives submitting to husbands. And you can only imagine how a topic like that generates no small debate, not only within the church, but outside the church as well. You know that Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They are now strangers or aliens to this world. In a word, they, we, are different. We sound different. We act different. We live different. Our behavior or our conduct is different. For example, going back into chapter 2, we learned about a new different conduct, a conduct toward a governing authority. We learned about masters and slaves, how a, an employee ought to respond toward an employer. But Peter now addresses the family or the household, wives toward husbands. And what he says is indeed alien, countercultural in so many respects. As I mentioned, it's offensive to many, to the world. This passage is, is, is upsetting, it's uh, offensive, it's almost vulgar. But what Peter writes is God given. This is God's design for marriage, how a marriage ought to function. And we need to remember that when God gives us a plan, his plan is always best. His plan will be better than any plans that we might make. It may not feel like the best. Others may tell us they know best, but I assure you that God's plan for marriage is the best. Thomas Sowell once said, the most basic question is not what is best, but who shall decide what is best? 
Well, I contend this morning that God must decide what is best for marriage and that following his plan for marriage, for wives, for husbands, we not only obey God, but we receive a blessing from God. We receive a reward and we see a certain beauty also. So this morning, God has the best answers. He has the best answers for questions like what matters to God when it comes to wives? What does a godly wife look like? How does a Christian wife, what does she do about an unsaved husband? This morning, we behold three shades of beauty in the godly wife. And in our time together, we'll focus on the first six verses of 1 Peter 1. Verse 7 is on husbands. We'll get to them next week. We'll really let them have it. I mean, we'll address them next week. I'll read all seven verses to give us context. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. I want to begin with our first two verses. Our outline this morning breaks up pretty evenly. There's three points, and each of them contain two verses. I begin with a winsome beauty in verses 1 and 2. Here it's a winsome beauty. This is a beauty by a wife that attracts or draws. It's a beauty that convinces. The beginning of verse 1 connects this theme of submission to all that came before. This has been a leading theme for Peter in this epistle. As he moved out of chapter 1 into chapter 2, chapter 1 telling us who we are in Jesus, our identity, and Peter then begins to talk about now what we do in Jesus, how we are to be or act. And this word submission, it keeps coming up. It's an important word to Peter. If you're looking back in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about submission toward authorities or the government. In verse 18, it's submission toward masters. And notice, even in verse 21, like, hidden in there, but prominent at the same time, the Lord gives us an example, Jesus, of submission. So submission is going to look different in each of these relationships, but the word always stokes passions. The notion that wives should submit to husbands, this is offensive and oppressive to people outside the church. Even from within, this could be regarded as misunderstood, even sinful, or perhaps evil. There are many experts in our day, and they all weigh in on this idea. 
One journalist writes in a news article, quote, submission in marriage has been an age-long concept deeply rooted in our culture as a patriarchal society. The woman is expected to submit to her husband, which in most cases is tyrannical because many men have gripped on to the submission rhetoric to ensure male dominance in marriage, a game of control and power. There's one reverend who also preaches equality using this theme. He writes, biblical scholars and pastors impose an American and modern day interpretation on the word submit. In doing that, you miss the whole concept of the love principle. If you have a husband or wife, a same-sex couple, two people together, the whole idea is to sit down and say, whom does what well? And then whomever does that well will sort of lead in that area. A third opinion, a third view is coming from a life coach through a marriage website. She writes, quote, being submissive can be a marker of underconfidence and security or other problems in the relationship. Research shows that the signs of a submissive woman are often associated with a range of psychological problems. Well, the world does not look favorably upon 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And that's to say nothing of our own hearts. I mean, by default, we are born in sin and our hearts resist God's designs. I think sometimes it's hard enough to submit to the Creator, let alone to other creatures who are equally fallen and sinful. It's a natural state that you were born in. It's, it's a life lived apart from God. We seek independence and we seek autonomy. Words like submit seem to have an extra layer to them then especially for wives who have husbands who don't deserve submission. Some may even ridicule the faith of the wife. And let's be honest, some wives are better leaders than their husbands, they're wiser than their husbands, and they're much better at making good decisions. So with all of these things floating around then, all seeking to define the meaning of 1 Peter chapter 3, Let's first say exactly what submission is not. Let's move some of these things off the table. First, let's say what it's not. Now, I'm getting some of this from a guy named Wayne Grudem and John Piper. They co-edited a book entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I uh, would reference that book to you so some of these thoughts originate with them. Uh, First, submission does not mean less intelligence. God isn't giving this passage out of a pity for wives as though they have a less of an IQ than, than a husband does. Uh, really, to the point of our passage, Christian wives will possess a greater spiritual insight than their husbands will, if their husbands are unbelieving. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, again, to the point of our passage, because unsaved husbands lack the Holy Spirit, they can't discern the things of the Spirit. In this way, wives possess an enormous element the husbands lack. They can successfully navigate life through the Lord because they have the Lord. Believing wives have the Holy Spirit, that means that you possess a spiritual intelligence and a wisdom and a discernment that unbelieving husbands lack. Secondly, submission does not mean ignorance. 
as though a Christian wife can't think for herself now that she's married. Obviously, in our passage, they did think for themselves, these wives. They heard the gospel. They counted the cost. They followed Jesus. They thought, in our passage, independent of their husbands who do not follow Jesus. They decided not to follow him, these husbands. And in the passage, notice how Peter addresses the wives, not the husbands. He knows they can think for themselves. He appeals to them, now that you follow Jesus, come and live as one who does. And thirdly, submission is not going to always agree. A wife will not always agree with her husband. In marriage, there's going to be differences on small things and differences on big things. I think one of the most challenging aspects of this passage happens at this point, where there's a difference in an outcome or an opinion or a view between a husband and a wife. It's in these moments when a husband and a wife couldn't be further away on a view Hopefully they're more rare, and hopefully there's some discussion. But in those moments, the wife submits to the husband's decision. That's God's plan for the relationship, bringing us to what this is. To say it one way, submission here is what it has been. Defined, we studied chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 18, Submission is willingly, voluntarily putting ourselves under someone else. Again, Peter isn't picking on wives here to to try to single them out as a group. Submission ought to be happening in many spheres of society. We've already seen a few of those in chapter 2. Secondly, submission is divine. This is God's idea. This is God's plan, and we also have an example within the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we believe the Trinity, they are all fully God, fully divine, and they are perfectly united, yet they each serve different roles. Your redemption is an illustration of that, how the Father has sent the Son, and the Son willingly submitted to the Father. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking on the form of bondservant, being made in human likeness. That's the story of Jesus, voluntarily and willingly giving of himself, coming under his Father. He's a perfect example of submission. And as I mentioned, I guess I'm alluding to it, thirdly, submission is God's design. God has a, a created order or an order for creation. He structured it in a way that he alone knows is best. He, in his infinite wisdom, has created the world and, and people and different groups and classes, and they all work together. And sometimes some submit here, and other times some submit there. His design is perfect, and no one will devise a better one. When the New Testament, if we're looking across the, bo- the books, submission is located in various relationships. We, we saw it in relationship to government, in relationship to the workplace. Submission happens within the church, within the family. It's a general call to wives toward husbands. Ephesians 5 verse 24 
As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Titus chapter 2, verse 4, quote, The young women are to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Colossians 3.18 tells us, Wives, be subject to your husbands. In other words, there's a very broad theme here that Peter and Paul, under the guidance of the Spirit, agree and write that this is God's design or God's plan for the relationship. But what's special about our passage this morning is that as broad as that theme is across the New Testament, this morning it kind of winnows down and really focuses on something in particular, something very important, something very specific for this design. Why should we submit, Peter? So that your husband may be one. Eternity is on the line. He speaks of husbands who are disobedient to the word. That means that they don't know Christ, and I'm taking that interpretation based on the word used elsewhere in 1 Peter. For example, back in chapter 2, verse 8, the disobedient, those disobedient to the word, they stumble They are appointed to a doom. And later in verse 20 of chapter 3, the disobedient are those who are not saved in Noah's flood. In many ways, Peter applies a principle from chapter 2, verse 12 to this marriage relationship. It's this idea of living in such a way that is winsome to people, where they see how the believer lives and are drawn and attracted to that. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, writes Peter, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Peter basically calls for an undercover evangelism here. In some ways, this is a clandestine operation. Now, to be sure, this submission that he calls for, the submission of verse 1, it's taking place in the context of a kind of rebellion. Now, wives in this time were not supposed to be so independent. Plutarch was a first century Greek philosopher, and he would have been right around his early 20s when Peter wrote this epistle. And in an essay entitled, quote, Advice to Bride and Groom, You can determine how great this advice is. Plutarch writes, quote, A woman ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Hence, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no God do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. What you have here then, if you're a Christian wife, is a great rebellion against the thinking of the time. The wife who followed Jesus found herself in cultural rebellion. She's really bucking the culture. She's swimming upstream, so to speak. The wife in this time has found a liberty She has found a new freedom in Jesus. It's dinner time. 
Oh, how easy it must have been to say, I'm free in Jesus, and you're free to use the microwave. <laughs> but that's not Peter's take. Now, we've already learned in chapter 2 that this freedom we have in Jesus, it's not for ourselves. We use this freedom for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And that's what is happening here. Peter wants Christian wives to use their freedom to see their husbands come to faith. But I bet not half as bad as the wives want to see that. So how do they do this? What's the strategy, Peter? Be submissive. Quietly, he says, that they may be won without a word. That doesn't mean that a wife is not permitted to talk. But what he's saying here is that the pressure is off. You don't need to be forcing the gospel down his throat. You don't need to set the the gospel track beside the alarm clock each night. You don't need to turn on the Christian radio whenever he's in the car. Rather, he says, through submissive behavior, through godly conduct, through an approach, again, completely countercultural, honoring God by using his design, says Peter, the unsaved husband might be saved. This would be through a conduct with, that, without, with very little talk. Notice how the, the, the sentence is written. The reading is without a word, not without the word. The distinction being is that we can't assume that he will, like through metamorphosis, just absorb the gospel. I mean, at some point, he'll need to hear the gospel. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 23, excuse me, new birth happens through the living and enduring word of God. So that's part of it. But, But again, the emphasis here, the focus is on godly conduct. Submissive conduct is a quietness. It also, in verse 2, is a chaste and respectful behavior. A chaste behavior is just another way of saying pure behavior. It's morally pure. Everywhere else this word is used in the New Testament, it's translated as innocent or or pure or free from sin. Peter says that a moral purity marks the testimony of the Christian wife. And secondly, there's a respectful behavior he writes about. That's a reverent conduct. Literally, it's a fearful conduct. And don't be thrown by that. This is a submission that looks to the husband for sure, but looks way past the husband to the God above. It is a reverence for God that Peter writes of here. Ultimately, it's a reverence for the Lord. Submission is a a winsome beauty. It's designed to win lost husbands to Jesus Christ. Some wives are here this morning married to unbelieving husbands. And you may have come to faith since marrying, or perhaps you've married and discovered not long after that your husband actually isn't a Christian. Well, Peter says this morning, don't worry. If you feel like you need to save your husband, don't worry. If you struggle with what to say, or when to say it, or how to say it, don't worry. Let your submissive, quiet, 
pure, reverent conduct win him to Jesus Christ. This is God's design for your marriage. And as God wills, he's going to cause him to be born again. New birth is God's work. It's not yours. God calls you to be submissive. And God uses faithful obedience to work out his plans for salvation. Well, Peter continues his instruction in this passage on the inner person. In verses 3 and 4, he speaks to the wife's inner beauty. Verses 1 and 2 was a winsome beauty. Verses 3 and 4 are an inner beauty. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. These verses, you may have observed, are a contrast between what is inside or internal and what is outside or external. The first word of verse 4, the word but, that's really the dividing line. That separates the two. The external of verse 3 is contrasted with the internal of verse 4. And again, I believe that Peter continues to address wives in this section. But I also believe this principle applies to all Christians. Now, it may sound a little weird to apply verses 3 and 4 to men. But some men spend a lot of energy on how they look. If those big, tall mirrors of the gym could talk, one wonders what stories they may tell. And women, additionally, who are not wives, I think there's really good principles here. We're regularly bombarded with images about what we ought to look like as men and women. And I think that single people in particular, you're going to find good wisdom in this passage. So Peter contrasts here what is on the inside with what is on the outside. He says, your adornment must not be merely external. In our culture, external adornment seems to seek a few different goals. Firstly, it displays one's wealth wanting to show off the wealth of perhaps the husband or the wife or the wealth, financial success of the couple. It may be a way to compete with other people. It seems as though that external adornment is meant to display one's body. In some cases, the way people dress move from just simply being attractive or or nice-looking to actually seductive. The goal is to receive either attention from men or, or envy from other women. External adornment also seems to to seek um, a display of one's identity, how one or what one associates with. It's a way to communicate with the world without actually having to say much. How one dresses or styles indicates sexuality. It indicates rebellion. It indicates allegiance. It's like a patch that one wears to show what one is about or who one partners with. But external adornment, notice what Peter says or doesn't say, is not bad. It's not wrong. It's not sin to look nice. In Proverbs 31, woman, she wears the nicest of clothes. In verse 22, she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And last week in our message, did not the father of the prodigal son give him the the nicest robe and the ring and the sandals? I mean, here's a man who had the suit and the accessories. So Peter's call here is not a campaign against looks or looking good. 
Rather, it's a question of emphasis. He says, focus on character, not clothing. Give some time to looking good, but give much time to looking like Christ. In other words, he says, really, let's break with the vanity of the world around us. Let's break with this self-display and this self-promotion because God, most of all, cares about what's inside. Who you are, not how you look. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think what's interesting about that verse is we often attach to the end of it, it's the last part of it, the Lord looks at the heart, we know that, but also written in there is the fact that by default we are just automatically looking at outward appearance. That's just our nature. We're ready to look at the outward appearance, but he says God doesn't think that way. Verse 4 calls this inside, this internal, a hidden person, the hidden person of the heart. It's your character. He describes it as imperishable. Some of your Bibles read unfading or incorruptible. Fashion continually changes. Fashion, what it is today, will not be imperishable or unfading or incorruptible. It's going to continually change. To keep up with the current fads, it becomes expensive. To keep up with the current fads is arguably wasteful as fashion comes in and out of style. Clothes go in and out of the closet. Fashion as it is today is uncomfortable, I think. I don't know this by experience, but from what I understand, whoever designs women's clothing, well, he doesn't wear them. But the investment, Peter says, that is made in the heart, this is forever. This is an investment that's going to continue to multiply. This is like a stock that continually compounds. That's what Peter's driving at. That's what's most important. And he says, again, he gets specific, it's a spirit that is gentle and quiet. This word gentle in particular really pops out. This has Jesus stamped all over it. Zechariah wrote that your king is coming gentle and mounted on a donkey. Jesus says of himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. And Jesus says of his followers that those who are gentle are blessed. Blessed are the gentle in the Beatitudes. So to adorn yourself in this way is precious in the sight of God. It's highly valuable. This is of great worth. So here again, God offers up a freedom. Back in verses 1 and 2, it was a freedom from the anxiety of having to convert a lost husband. Here it's a freedom from what I would call a kiasu culture. That term comes from Singapore, and over there there's a strong sense of competition in society. It means literally the fear of missing out. This campaign in our culture that relentlessly pursues women to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, to to try not to veer too far out of fashion or to stay current and trending, God offers you freedom from that. In these two verses, 
to focus not on the adornment of clothing and accessories, not to draw attention to yourself, but to to focus on the adornment of your soul and to draw attention to who? To the Lord. This is an inner beauty that is precious to God. Well, thirdly, in our last two verses, verses 5 and 6, we see an ancient beauty. An ancient beauty. Peter here points back, giving us, giving wives, an example to follow. For in the same way in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Well, if by now this concept of submission is still a dark cloud hanging over us, if I have unsuccessfully navigated the minefields and stepped on one too many triggers, Peter offers some good final notes of hope here. First, we notice that submission is not a new concept. In other words, you don't need to figure this out for the first time. Adopting this biblical principle of submission, it's been done before, along with all of its blessings and all of its challenges. We learn as well here that many women have practiced it. Notice that he writes in the plural, holy women, meaning many women have done this. Throughout history, God's women have been adorning themselves with the message that Peter preaches this morning. We see thirdly, that you show yourself to be a child of Sarah. You would be her spiritual child as she walked by faith. She adorned herself in certain ways. You are like her when you do the same. And fourthly, obviously, that means you have an example to follow. Who we idolize is who we become. Over time, you and I begin to take on the beliefs and the practices of those we respect And that is, by the way, why Peter has given us Jesus Christ. Again, if you're looking along in your Bibles, look at chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, and and look at how that sticks right in the middle of this text on submission. He began all the way back with governing authorities. I forget that's either verse 13 or 18. And now as you get into chapter 3, he's talking about submission again. But what's in the center there? It's a reminder that Jesus Christ himself is our example. And Jesus Christ knew what it meant to submit. And that's why God has also given us another example for wives in the woman of Sarah. The wife of a husband who didn't merit her deeds of verse 6 and 7. A husband named Abraham. She was submitting and obeying and calling him Lord. And Sarah is this example of biblical submission, and might I add, a curious example. Just imagine what her experience would have been like. Your husband comes in and announces a change. Honey, we're moving. Missoula, Montana, here we come. Because that is the distance from Bellingham to Missoula as it was from Haran to Canaan. Only it would have been a complete change for them in terms of culture and people and religion. At least they still spoke English in Missoula. 
Well, it gets more interesting because your husband tells you that we're moving because God told me we're moving. He spoke to me. And he is, by the way, a brand new God, not one of the gods, not one of the gods that we've always known and worshipped. And as you near this land, you encounter a famine. And your husband turns the camel and heads south because, of course, he knows where he's going. And as he makes the turn, he leans over the hump to whisper to you. Now, he's going to do this with his eyes on the road because he's a safe driver, but also because the deceit that he speaks, he knows you'll detect it if you could see his eyes. See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, he says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Because of your husband's idea, an entire household contracts great plagues. Yes, it's plural, multiple plagues. And before you know it, you are back on the road. Now at times, this relationship between Abraham and Sarah, it certainly bent. It was certainly tested. There was a strain in that relationship. When they didn't trust God, things got rocky for them. Hagar, the Egyptian maid, had a son named Ishmael. They lied to Abimelech, the king of Gerar. They laughed at God's promise of a child in an old age. But Sarah did conceive. And she did give birth. And she did raise this special son of an old age. And she watched him play and watched him grow. And what do you think she thought when Abraham came in the room and when he told her he's taking Isaac to kill him as a sacrifice? What did she feel when he returned? Sarah obeyed Abraham. And she lived submissive to her husband. And she did it because she trusted God. Abraham didn't always make the right decisions. Sarah wasn't perfect either. But maybe that's Peter's point. That their marriage was not perfect. And it wasn't sin-free. But Sarah submitted to Abraham because she submitted to God. You know, at the outset of this message, I mentioned this passage might be like a minefield. But perhaps there's a better way to think about it. In the nation of Mozambique, there's a place called Lazane Farms. It's 1,250 hectares of land, or that's 3,000 acres of land, and it's a giant farm. They produce high-quality soybean seeds and corn seeds and other types of seeds there. And the neat part about this farm is that it's located on an old minefield. Left over from years of civil war, the land's been cleared, and it's actually something quite magnificent and beautiful. It's a beautiful farm. It's a sight to see. It produces a precious crop to the people there and surrounding nations, and it serves so many who see its value. I think that's the way to see this passage. 
that God's design is beautiful and that godliness is precious and that God is well served when we see his plan as practiced. This passage is not dangerous, but beautiful. It's a divine design for a redeemed people. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a divine design for our marriages. Lord, it is hard at times to digest. It is harder at times to apply. But I pray for the marriages in this room that you would bless them and that you would grant wives a grace to love you with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. And that in doing so, they're able to submit to their husbands, hard as that may be at times. May they see a grace and a beauty and a blessing in that. Oh Lord, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.